Hey everyone, this is Pedro Chung, and welcome to Bible Sumo Weekly, a Bible study podcast for everyday Christians. We are continuing our current series in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. Episode title, Judah and Tamar. In this chapter, we will study a parenthetical chapter, Genesis 38. This chapter is a flashback to Joseph's older brother, Judah. And there are many that will ask, why is this chapter here? It seems to interrupt the plot development of the Genesis narrative of Joseph. There are at least five reasons why I believe the account of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is here. First, it's a part of Jacob's story, because you'll remember that the heading of Genesis chapter 37, verse 2 is, these are the generations of Jacob. And even though I have consistently referred to Genesis chapter 37 to 50 as the Joseph narrative, this is really the story of Jacob's household. And we will soon see that in the story of Jacob's children, Judah will become a central protagonist. The second reason why this is here is because chapter 38 explains why it was necessary for God to bring Israel to Egypt. You see, Jacob's sons were beginning to intermarry with the Canaanites, and they were in danger of being swallowed up by Canaan's culture. And so God chose to preserve the Jewish people and bring them to Egypt as a separate people, because we'll soon see the Egyptians disliked foreigners, especially shepherds like the Hebrews. The third reason is that Genesis 38 will contrast the shortcomings of Judah with the uprightness of Joseph in Genesis 39. The fourth reason, this chapter provides very important information and background that will build up to the climax in Genesis 44 when Judah becomes a pledge and guarantor for Benjamin. I really can't wait till chapter 44 because we will see in chapter 44 one of the strongest foreshadowings of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that will need to wait a few weeks. Finally, this story gives Judah's lineage that provides further background to the genealogy of the Messiah, and we'll soon see that God's promised Messiah, Christ Jesus, will come through the line of Judah through Tamar. So both Joseph and Judah, the chief protagonists of the Joseph narrative, they are living in isolation from their brothers and their father. It's here in Genesis chapter 38 that we see Judah at his worst. But later in Genesis 44, we will see Judah at his best. But first, Genesis 38. And at the start of Genesis 38, we are introduced to Judah committing three important sins. Sin number one, he marries a pagan wife in verse one to five. Sin number two, Judah breaks his promise, verse six to 14. And sin number three, Judah solicits a prostitute, verses 15 to 23. So let's look at Judah's first sin, marrying a pagan wife and I'll read verses 1 through 5. It happened at that day that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adonamite, whose name was Hira. 
And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in with her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So first one begins with the phrase, it happened at that time. And this, ref- this phrase refers to the preceding event at the end of chapter 37. So the events of chapter 38 are taking place sometime in the 22-year period between the sale of Joseph, which we learned in the end of chapter 37, and the departure of Jacob's family for Egypt later in Genesis 45. The phrase went down in verse 1 just means that like Joseph, Judah left his father's house. Now, Judah may have left because of the guilt that he felt over the supposed death of Joseph. His brothers, in fact, may have blamed him for suggesting that they sell Joseph into slavery, causing the subsequent unending grief of his father. And so this could explain Judah's decision to distance himself from his brothers. But whatever the final motivation, Judah leaves his father and his brothers, and he travels south of Bethlehem and then west into the hills of the Shephelah. He becomes friends with Hira, a citizen of Adonam, and he marries a woman from that town. Now, the Hebrew text does not give his wife's name and identifies her solely as the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. But the Septuagint actually attributes the name of Judah's wife as Shua. So this is one of the few cases where the, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text actually disagree. But whatever the case, we know that Judah is marrying a Canaanite woman, and this was strictly prohibited by Abraham in Genesis chapter 24, verse 3, and later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. Judah should have known very clearly from his father Jacob that grandfather Isaac was very displeased when his uncle Esau married foreign Hittite wives. Judah's wife bore him three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And the last was born at Kezeb, which is usually identified with Achzeb, which is a site southwest of Adullam. So it is interesting to note that all three of Judah's children were born in the territory that will one day belong to Judah's tribe during the time of Joshua. Well, let's now look at Judah's second sin, his broken promise, beginning in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, 
and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adamanite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, here we see that Tamar's ethnicity is actually undisclosed, but many commentators will assume a Canaanite lineage since the text does not explicitly indicate any Israelite connection. Now, the Bible here also does not identify the firstborn son, Ur, and his specific offense. He is just described as being evil in the Lord's eyes or wicked in the sight of Yahweh. Now, typically, when God takes a person's life, the reason or the sin is always given. But there is no explicit reason given here. But we must assume that it must have been a grave offense. Ur is the first named individual in Genesis whose life God took as punishment. Now, let me give you a little bit of background information about the concept and tradition of a leveret marriage. So the term that we use, leveret marriage, it refers to the marriage of a widow to her husband's brother. The Hebrew term for brother-in-law is yabam, but the Latin term is levir. But this term levir is actually not used in Jerome's Vulgate. But it's the Latin term lever that we get this custom as being identified as leveret marriage. Now, this tradition, which is also referred to as a law, it obligates a man whose brother had died childless to marry and impregnate his brother's widow. And the resulting child was customarily given the dead brother's name and was considered to be a successor to the dead brother's line. And so during Judah's time, the surviving brother would have no choice in the matter, and no choice was given to the widow, the widow Eider. The widow uh, could not decline the marriage to her dead husband's brother. Now, this tradition, this law may sound terrible, but a leveret marriage was actually, in a sense, created uh, as a means of showing mercy. Because this leveret marriage helps a widow to have both children and economic security. Now, God modifies this practice a bit later in the book of Deuteronomy by allowing a brother to refuse to marry his brother's widow. And this tradition is usually um, done in a public ceremony, and the Jewish people call this uh, halitzah. And this is when the late brother's widow would remove a man's sandal 
and spat at him because he refused to preserve his brother's name in Israel. Let me read to you a portion in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So we see here that Tamar does predate Deuteronomy. And so this ceremony uh, with the sandal and the spitting, which I said is, is termed halitzah, this was probably not an option. So the brother had no choice but to marry his late brother's widow. Now in verse 10, it states that what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Onan's sin was making sure he did not impregnate Tamar when he slept with her. And so in doing so, he cheated Tamar, he cheated his father and father-in-law, and he cheated his late brother. So Onan cheated Tamar by preventing her from having children. He cheated his father and his father-in-law by pretending to fulfill the obligation of the Leveret marriage. And thirdly, he cheated his late brother by denying him an heir and the preservation of his name in Israel. So we see here that Judah's first two sons both died after marrying Tamar. And so Judah feared that his third and only remaining son, Shelah, would also die if he married Tamar. And so Judah did not want his third son to marry Tamar. Now, here is one of the few times, the rare times, that the author of Genesis, who I believe is Moses, explains what a person is thinking. And so Moses here is using a literary viewpoint of third-person omniscient which, like I said, is a bit unusual in the Genesis narrative. So Judah felt Tamar brought bad luck, and so he sends Tamar home to her father. Judah did not simply forget his promise to give his third son, Shelah, in marriage to Tamar. He intentionally broke his promise. And Judah's subsequent behavior takes place once he is again an unmarried man. And so verse 12 notes that in the course of time, Judah's wife died, long enough for Shelah to have reached a marriageable age. Now, at the end of this period of mourning for his wife, 
Judah went up to Timnah with his friend Hira uh, to visit men who were shearing his sheep. Now, during this time in the Near um, uh, East, the ancient Near East, ship shearing involved both hard work, but there was also joyous festivities. And so with Hiram accompanying him, Judah was identifying with the Canaanites. And it's here that we see that Tamar learns of Judah's planned journey to Timnah. And since Shelah had grown up, she had concluded that her father-in-law Judah no longer intended to keep the promises and the obligations of leveret marriage. And so Tamar removed her widow's clothes She dressed up, put on a veil, went out, and sat down at the entrance to Inyam, a town on the road to Timnah. Now let's look at Judah's third sin, soliciting a prostitute. We read this sin beginning in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let us come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet? and your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in with her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the colt prostitute who was at Inyam at the roadside? And they said, No colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So we see at the start of this scene, Judah passes by the place on the road and he notices a woman sitting at the entrance to the gate and he took her to be a prostitute. Now, in general, prostitutes in the ancient Near East, they covered their face. And so this is why Judah did not recognize his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And so Tamar asked Judah what he was willing to pay for her to sleep with him. She wanted to implicate her father-in-law, Judah. Now, since Judah did not have any money with him, he promised to send her a young goat from the flock, and this should be interpreted as a very generous offer. But Tamar asked for a pledge. Now, this word pledge is the same Hebrew word that Judah will later use when he says that he would be a pledge for Benjamin in Genesis chapter 43 and 44. And keep this noted in your mind for reference later on. So Tamar requests from Judah a pledge of his signet or his seal, his cord, and his staff. 
Let's start with this signet or this seal. So during this time, a seal or a signet was usually a small precious stone and it was generally a form of a cylinder on which were inscribed a person's name along with perhaps some symbols that were closely connected with that person. And so when this was rolled over wax or a soft clay tablet, the seal would imprint the owner's name and symbol. And many of these seals had a hole through the center and uh, a custom made cord would then be placed through it to be worn around the neck. A lot of tribal leaders during this time also carried a staff and these staffs often had carved heads which depicted the symbol of that particular tribe. So these three items, the seal, the cord, and the staff were unmistakably identified to their owner. And the modern equivalent of this would be to ask someone for perhaps their driver's license, their credit card, and their personal phone. So Judah slept with Tamar and Tamar conceived. And then Tamar went home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. We see here that Tamar had no intention of living a lifestyle as a prostitute. This was Tamar's one-time desperate response to Judah's sin against her and Ur, Judah's firstborn. So when Judah returns home, he sends his good friend, Hirah, to pay the woman, um, the prostitute, presumably, uh, a small goat to retrieve his pledge, that is, his signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, his friend Hirah made inquiry as to the whereabouts of this supposed cult prostitute, and the men of Inyam did not know anything about any cult prostitutes having visited that area. And I also think it's interesting to note that experts of the ancient Near East claim that there was no cult prostitution in ancient Canaan. So Tamar prevented Judah from paying to redeem his small pledge because she had been prevented from marrying Judah's youngest son. Now, I want to make it clear that the text doesn't state that Tamar was righteous. Tamar had, in fact, sinned, but Judah's sin was far worse. Well, let's now look at Tamar's vindication in verses 24 to 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, for I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So we see here that about three months later, Judah was informed that her daughter-in-law Tamar had acted as a prostitute and was now pregnant. And so Judah ordered that she be be brought out and be burned to death. And I should note here that the Torah in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, 
in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, it teaches that both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. Now, as Tamar was being brought out to be put to death, she sent a message to Judah that she had become pregnant by the man who owns the three items, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And so with these objects, they immediately revealed to everyone, to the bystanders, who had impregnated her. It was Judah himself. When Judah realized that his identity had been revealed, he recognized that his sin was greater than Tamar's. Tamar had kept herself, preserved herself for marriage to Shelah, but Judah had failed to keep his promise to her. Well, let's look at the final section of this chapter, Tamar's bearing twins in verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and cut uh, and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So the ending of this chapter is a testament of God's undeserving grace. Tamar gives birth to twins, and Perez, the firstborn, becomes the ancestor of Christ Jesus. Tamar was not just a sinner. She was also a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. And in fact, the four women in the Matthew genealogy of Christ Jesus, all four women were Gentiles. You'll remember that Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was likely a Hittite. And we infer this knowing that her husband, Uriah, was a Hittite. So the inclusion of four Gentile women show that God's grace, even in the Old Testament, abounded not just to Israel, but for all nations, for all people who would accept and receive God's redemption. Genesis 38 is a story of grace. You remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Because of what the law states, Judah and Tamar both deserved death. And yet God forgave them. He gave them mercy and grace. And it was because of this grace that their son, their firstborn son, Perez, came the promised Messiah. I mean, what man could have authored this story? Judah was like the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. Judah runs away from home and he lives a pagan life. But we soon see that God saved Judah. And Christ Jesus later on will be given the title, the Lion of Judah. This story of grace in Genesis could only be conceived by Yahweh himself. So in review, why Genesis 38? 
Well, first, it is a part of Jacob's story. Second, this chapter explains why it was necessary for God to bring all the people of Israel to Egypt. Third, it contrasts Judah's shortcomings with Joseph's uprightness in Genesis 39, the next chapter. Fourth, this chapter provides background for us that will build up to the climax of Genesis 44. And finally, this story gives Judah's lineage, providing the background to the genealogy of the promised Messiah, Christ Jesus. Well, thanks for listening to Bible Sumo Weekly. For more information about me or this podcast, visit our website at biblesumo.com. In our next episode, we will continue our series here in Genesis and the life of Joseph, and we'll see Joseph's new life in Egypt, in Potiphar's house, and Joseph's temptation by Potiphar's wife. Follow our podcast and listen to our Bible studies each and every week.